This is the story and the real fight of Victor Conti. This baseline played right here by your favorite bassist, Anthony Jackson, started all for you. You were born July 10th, 1950 in Death Valley. The top two movies, do you know the top two movies? Maybe, take a guess. From 1950? Yeah, you might know. No, I don't know. Well, the top two movies, King Solomon's Mind and Cinderella. Oh, wow. Yeah. You later moved to Fresno, California. And the number one song on your 14th birthday, take a wild guess. Who was big? On my 14th birthday? Who was, a, who was big during that time? What group? The Beatles. Real close. It was uh, the Beach Boys, I Get Around. The Beach Boys, yeah. Yeah, remember like uh, Gidget? Do you remember Gidget? A lot of people, when I ask people- Of course, they, it's a television show. Yeah, people are cool. I'm like, okay, I'm aging myself. All right, well, you attended McLean High School and you did track and the long jump. I didn't know that about you. I, I knew you were in some sport. I did not know that. And also you started a band with one of your cousins Bruce Conti. We're going to get into him a little bit later. And um, this is, and I've, I've learned that you started the love of music. You, what, how old were you when you started playing or just kind of playing around with that, with music in general? I started taking guitar lessons when I was 10 years old. So that's 1960. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then, interesting enough, I didn't know how good you were in track and long jump that you earned a scholarship to Fresno City College for the track team in 1969. Victor Conti. People know you as the guy from Snack or the, the dirty guy in sports. I don't think anyone ever knew you that you were an athlete. You were, you were on scholarship. How did this happen? I didn't even know you had the love of running and jumping. Talk about that. Well, let's correct that first. They, they don't give scholarships that I know of to junior colleges. So, <laughs> well, so, you are someone put in your wiki. What? So what college yeah, did you go to? Well, as you might imagine, not all that information is accurate. But Well, I've been uh, looking in a I, lot I started, of books, it, see? My, all my of your... <laughs> my track career started when I was 10 uh, in the fifth grade, uh -huh. and they had something at school called Field Day. And it was 50-yard dash and pull-ups and 600-yard run and standing long jump. So I won the trophy for most outstanding boy on field day. And I brought it home and then told my mom and dad, I will win it again next year, which I did when I was in sixth grade when I was 11 years old. Uh -huh. And where I grew up in Fresno, it was a very much so a track and field town. And they had something actually at my city college home track, Radcliffe Stadium there on Blackstone, called the West Coast Relays. It was a world-class uh, track meet that they had. But uh, I started competing, and my mom would drive me around to all these little uh, AAU races. And so I, I, I was a sprinter initially, and then thereafter turned into a long jumper and a triple jumper. When I mean, for a sprinter, what was your best time back in college? Well, first of all, I'm so old that they didn't even run in meters then, they ran in yards. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, so it was 100 yards and 75 yards. And, of course, in elementary school, it was 50. And, of course, it wasn't until later that they actually changed, uh, changed everything to meters. And mm -hmm. one time I saw John Carlos. I don't know if you know who he is, but in 1968, mm -hmm. 
Tommy Smith and uh, John Smith were yeah. at the Olympic Games and they raised their hand, black power at the Olympics, and then they had to leave. There was a big scandal. Anyway, I watched him tie the world record in the 100-yard dash there. And at that time, they didn't have these Mondo uh, tracks. They were clay. We ran on dirt. Oh. So I, I, I'm old enough that uh, all my marks were not in meters, but they were, in, they were either in feet and inches in the long jump and triple jump, or they were in, uh, in, in yards. And in ninth grade, I, I ran the 75-yard uh, dash in 8-2, and that was the fastest kid in the city at the time. Oh, wow. And now, since you ran on clay, did you wear specific shoes? Because I know when you wear track, uh, you, now you wear track shoes. Did you just wear regular sneakers? No, you had shoes? longer spikes. Oh. I mean, it was, yeah, everybody would, uh, we, we were basically running on clay or dirt. And, and that's, that was long before they had AstroTurf or now what they call Mondo tracks. Okay. Growing up, since uh, that was your passion at that time, who did you look up to in sports, in, in track and jump and field? Did you have any? Did you have any idols that you looked up to? Sports idols? Uh, my idol was always Muhammad Ali. From the time I was ten years old, and I watched him win the light heavyweight champion or, or the gold medal uh, in the Olympics in Rome in, in 1960. My dad uh, boxed when he was in the Navy, and his brothers boxed in the Army and the Navy. And so he, every time there was boxing, we would watch. And mm -hmm. then uh, thereafter in 1964, so I think it was in February when he uh, fought Sonny Liston for the title. And my dad didn't like Muhammad Ali. I love Muhammad Ali. He thought he had a big mouth and wanted to see somebody shut his mouth up. And I liked him because he always backed up everything he said. Mm -hmm. So I went to the uh, Warfield Theater in Fresno on Fulton Street with my dad when he, uh, beat Sonny Liston and, and won the title. And of course, back then he was Cassius Clay. And at some point shortly thereafter, he changed it to Muhammad Ali. Did you ever box? No. A couple times oh. in the front yard. And I remember one time, uh, my best friend, uh, he just waited and waited. And, and we got some boxing gloves and I was punching him in the face. And, and he just <laughs> waited until I threw a right hand and he threw a left hook to the stomach. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't breathe for like five minutes. Oh no! I thought wow. boxing is not for me. Oh, that's funny how 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 everything uh, comes in full circle as we're going to get into uh, your your current career. But we still have to get through the beginning of your career because not many people know who you are, Victor. I mean, when your story was unfolding, as I was researching you, I mean, I I said for Bob Arum, I had pages a hundred pages printed of him. I wrote twenty pages of notes of him. For you, I have well over 100 pages on you and well over 40 pages written. I think that's why my hand has like carpal tunnel. It really does. But you are really, really fascinating because, you know, I always, I kept it a secret of who I was interviewing next. I kept saying, you know, he's polarizing. He's very controversial. He's talented. He's knowledgeable. He's smart. He, you're so many things. And what a lot of people don't realize that before you were this, I would say maybe a mad scientist or some guy in sports or the, the Adolf Hitler of sports at the time, you were a musician. You graduated in 1969. Is that when you graduated high school? I graduated in high school in 1968. 68. And then college, when did you graduate? Any? I didn't graduate. I dropped out to go play music. So I, uh, I went the 68, 69, and 69, 70 school years, and I was on mm -hmm. the track team 
both both years and got my letterman's jacket. Uh, but then I got an opportunity to move to Los Angeles. Uh, I, the whole time I was in college, I played six nights a week in a nightclub. In and, Los Angeles? Uh, was carrying a full load in school. Okay. And then uh, I'd compete on the weekends uh, at track meets. So I've been making $145 a night for five sets a night, six nights a week. And right toward the end of that school year, I got a call from a friend who offered me a job down in Los Angeles making $500 for two nights. And I decided, do I want to be a musician or am I going to, I didn't really, I knew that I wasn't going to go very far, much farther uh, uh -huh. as an athlete, uh, you know, it's <laughs> much bigger than me. And we had great guys on our team and I competed against some very, very good uh, track and field athletes, long jumpers specifically. But uh, I made the decision that uh, I would take that chance. I packed up all my stuff. Uh, right before the end of the year, went to the office and got all incompletes and moved to Los Angeles and lived in a rat infested basement for six months and joined a group. And sure enough, uh, six months later, we signed a recording contract with Epic Records, which is a division of Columbia. It's the same label as Michael Jackson. So 1971, you moved to Los Angeles from Fresno and you started your journey as a musician, as a badass bass player. So you just mentioned right now that you did get signed. Uh, it's a huge contract. I mean, you're what, 21 years old? At 20. 20. Okay. You signed with a band. You get signed to Epic Records, big label, still big, big label. They were Michael Jackson's company. 20 years old. You're chasing this dream. You know, it's uh, when all those transplants come back or come to Hollywood because to chase their stars. You did it. You signed with Pure Food and Drug Act Band. First of all, that's a very, very interesting name, uh, the band. <laughs> Why that name, first of all? <laughs> I'm really curious. <laughs> the, the drummer of the band, his name was Paul Lagos. He was really a jazz drummer. Yeah. And he was on the board of directors of the local 47 Musicians Union there, which is the largest in the world. Uh -huh. and he's actually the one that uh, talked Ray Brown, the world famous Ray Brown, who for 20 years was voted the number one jazz bass player in the world. Mm -hmm. Got him to give me lessons for two or three years there in the early 1970s. Wow. So, so he created a lot of opportunities for me. I actually, he had to drive out on a dirt road to get to his house. And another musician, Randy Resnick, that now lives in Paris, France. And I lived in this rat infested basement. He had a huge record collection. And, and all we did was, was play music and practice and I studied with another uh, bass player, Ray Siegel, who was the head of the bass department of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and Ray Brown, who's an absolute icon. Uh, he played with Dizzy Gillespie and mm -hmm. and uh, Charlie Parker, uh, Bird. He was the manager of Quincy Jones. He mm -hmm. he was the leader of the Merv Griffin Show Band. I mean, he was the he was a very big name and a very famous uh, bass player. And it was a tremendous opportunity for me to become one of his students. Wow, that's, first of all, you're chasing your dreams, you dropped out of college, and you chase your dreams to come to Los Angeles, and you land not just a band, but someone to even teach you. Do you play by ear? Do you play by, do you, can you read notes? Are you that yeah, talented? I can read music. I studied, when I first started, it was reading music on guitar. And then I switched to bass when I was 15. Okay. And of course, at that time, I was all about James Brown. 
Everyone was about James Brown. <laughs> and, and all these other hits. Papa got a brand new bag and, and all these. Uh, we had a band, my cousin Bruce and I, and actually a couple of my other cousins. And we called ourselves the immediate family. My one cousin played drums. The other one played saxophone. And uh, Bruce played guitar and I, and I played bass. And we used to play at the family functions. And, of course, most of our repertoire was James Brown songs. Oh, my God. How incredible. You, you surprised me. I mean, I, I knew that you played bass. And uh, I know that I see a little bit of your guitar hanging out back there. But the people, people didn't even know this. When I read about you and even when I spoke, when I first met you, uh, when I did the interview at Snack, when you told me, do you know who I am? And I'm like, that's a very interesting question. I'm like, yeah, you're that guy that the Olympics, all that. You're like, no, I made all my money with a group named Tower of Power. I've heard of the group, and then when I started listening to all the music, I couldn't believe I knew so much, so many of your songs. I have such an old soul with uh, when it comes to music like that. So 1977, 1979, you signed with Tower of Power. Your cousin, Bruce Conti, he was also in the band. How did that band come to fruition? How did you end your other band, Pure Food and Drug Act, uh, you, you toured and they were like a blues, jazz, rock and roll band. How did that end? And then how did you end up getting to Tower of Power? Well, it's a pretty long story, but basically what happened is they were looking for a bass player. Uh -huh. And with the Pure Food and Drug Act, we'd actually played a gig together as the opening act for Tower of Power in uh -huh. Omaha, Nebraska. And we played another gig with another band uh, down in, near San Diego. So they had heard me play and they knew who I was. And when they started auditioning bass players, each day I was living with Bruce at the time up, up here in the Bay Area. And that guy didn't work out. The next guy didn't work out. These were all very famous uh, bass players. Uh, mm -hmm. Paul Jackson from Herbie Hancock's band and many others came. And, and they got to, uh, uh, they'd been through eight bass players. They, they didn't like any of them thus far and finally ct chester thompson who after he left the tower of power he played with uh, santana for 25 years so he's, wow. he lives in Melbourne, not too far from from where i live now but he said i don't care uh they, they had indicated ronnie beck at the time had a brother named donnie beck that played bass and they had told him we don't want any family members because they stick together when they make decisions and therefore they can't do that so because they wouldn't allow his brother Donnie to come and, and audition, they said they weren't going to allow me to come uh, because I had the same last name as you and my cousin Bruce Conti that I couldn't come. And finally, on the very last day, they had a young black kid that came up from San Jose. And uh, so they asked me to come early. So I had learned eight or nine songs. And so we played one song. You uh, learned eight or nine songs in how songs. long? Well, because I knew I was going to get the gig once they let me play. Yeah, that's uh, okay. So I, I played uh, this song called Can't You See. Can't you see? The leader of the band, Can't Amelia Castillo, who I still talk to now, he takes snack products, Robotine, CMA, and so on. He, uh, he came in in the middle of the second song, which was uh, a famous Tower Power song called What Is Hip? Mm -hmm. And so he heard the ride out at the end and he said, wow, that, that was hot. Play that again. Yeah. And so we played that tune and then or, or, or Mick Gillette, the trumpet player, said, if you thought that was hot, you should have heard the other song. Uh -huh. And so we played Can't You See again and maybe said, Victor, listen, go over there and sit down and uh, 
you know, and we'll come back and, and talk to you a little while. But Mimi, I know eight or nine songs. You know, what I have to go sit down now. So just go sit down. So I went and sat down and immediately some of the guys, uh, Tom Coster, who was the keyboard player in Santana at the time, and we were at a place called Studio Instrument Rentals on Folsom in San Francisco. So they immediately came over and said, listen, if Tower Power doesn't hire you, we want you in Santana. Uh-huh. So I waited and waited and pretty soon they they stopped and they huddled up on stage and and after a couple of minutes, Mimi turned around and asked me to come up there. And I walked up and he said, look, we just took a vote. And it's nine out of nine. It's unanimous. Everybody wants you. If you want the gig, it's yours. I said, but Mimi, you only heard one song. He said, well, that's all we needed to hear. Well, so this that's was all the we needed in 1977. That was on a Monday and Friday night, first part of May, we played at the Memorial Auditorium in Sacramento was, our, was my first gig. Oh, my goodness. It's Tower of Power. When when I was researching and watching all the YouTube and just all the concerts and all the links, five horns, five rhythm section. It, this is a large band, and the band is still going. Uh, it's it's funk, soul, jazz. I didn't know you had it in you, Victor. I'm going to ask you: uh, Can you still rock out on your bass behind you? Can you like give us a little something, something? Uh, can you first? Can you show me or can you play the song, the bass line that actually inspired you, Anthony Jackson? Your favorite bassist. He played that bass line. Where were you? How old were you? When you heard that song, what went through your mind? Did it give you I, I used to sit on the house that I bought. When we got the record deal, I bought a new car and I, I bought a beautiful house. On the How top old of the were deal. you then at the time? I was 20. 20. Wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then I did some other things, helped my parents with some money. They, they got a new air conditioning system in their house in, in Fresno, as you know, it gets up to 115 degrees there. And anyway, I had a, uh, a big deck on top of the garage that looked out over downtown San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my favorite tune at the time, and of course, Anthony Jackson played on this tune was for the love of money. Money, 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 money. Yeah. <laughs> money. <laughs> so that was, you know, I used to think about what it would be like to be rich and have a lot of money and be able to do anything I wanted to do and buy anything I wanted to buy. And and uh, I, I had vision at a very young age. And I knew that one day that I would be very successful and, and make a lot of money and have a lot of fun doing it. Can you play that? Can you play that baseline for me? I might be able to. Let's see here. Let's do it. Do you sing? It goes something like this. No, I don't sing. What? I wish I did. I'd really be rich if I could sing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you're going to play the OJs for the love. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Are you sweating already? (laughs) You know I do that? (laughs) To uh, get a little grease on my fingers so they're they're more slippery. Mmm. play I, I actually I have seen you play but when you were 25 you had that that interesting hair 
the long mustache. A little, little jazz for you. Oh, yes, please. France mm -hmm. said the way I moved around on stage looked like a walking fish. <laughs> so, Wait, is it a slippery fish or a walking fish? <laughs> ultimately, I, uh, that was the name of my publishing company, and I wrote multiple songs, including some on a Tower Power album. Uh -huh. uh, and, and the name of my publishing company became Walking Fish. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I see that you were super white, like very, very white. And uh, that, I mean, you guys, if you, you have to Google what he looked like, because it's you know, it, you it's it's exactly how you would picture it—the long hair, that you you had some hair, you had some hair, Victor, <laughs> you had some hair then. Okay. <laughs> well, that was that that was. Think about it. I was 27 when I joined the band in in 1977, so I'll be 70 this July. So so that's a long time ago. Wow. 17 albums, total albums, and uh, with Tower of Power. You know, some of my favorite songs when I was listening to it, I didn't even know those were Tower of Power. It was uh, like, You're Still a Young Man. Um, I was just singing the other one earlier. Uh, oh, yeah, Yin Yang Tang. <laughs> yin, yin Yang Tang. Oh, Yin Yang Tang. I'm like, Yin Tang. <laughs> down to the nightclub. Uh, yeah. Tower of Power, I guess. They started in 1968. Mimi started mm -hmm. the band in Oakland. Yeah. And uh, what's been 52 years now. It's crazy that they're still going. I saw on YouTube that Soul Train, that you weren't on it, your your cousin was on it. And I kept saying, I'm like, is that, is that you? Is that Victor? But um, right after them, because they always have another band, it was this, uh, the Pointer Sisters. Oh, yeah. Oh. I used to play a lot of gigs with the Pointer Sisters, and of course, I what you did? Yeah, and, and I also played with Herbie Hancock, who's a jazz pianist. Yeah. And after I left Herbie, there was there was actually, uh, or maybe maybe it was before I joined Herbie. Uh, we played at the Greek Theater in in Berkeley, and the group uh, called Jump Street that we had, which had a, a lot of famous people in it. Uh, Gavin Christopher wrote one of the biggest hits for Rufus and Chaka Khan called Once You Get Started. It was wow. a very big hit, number one in 1976. But anyway, uh, Jump Street opened the show and then Tower of Power and then Herbie Hancock and Joel Selvin, the writer for the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, the, the, uh, the music writer said that he thought the most musical moments of the day belonged to Jump Street. So this was, uh, and, and of course now when I look back, I played in all three of those groups. That's amazing. That's incredible. I mean, people don't know this about you uh, being Herbie. First of all, Herbie Hancock, you are with, you were part of the uh, master band. Is that what it's called? Herbie the Hancock. -Star band. It was yeah, called -Star Monster band. band. The Monster Band. Herbie Hancock's Mon Monster, Monster band. band. I can't even read my own handwriting. Wow. The, Talk about what it was like to play with uh, Herbie Hancock. I mean, he's someone that 
you know, you're young, you see him on TV, you listen to his music. And then the fact that you're sharing the stage with him, I saw the, the photos of with Herbie and then you're standing off to the side and then, um, uh, what, what is her name again? Uh, we're, uh, Sheila e. Sheila yes, Sheila E. She's in the background. Now, Sheila went on, of course, after that, she played with Prince. Yes. And Lionel Richie and George Benson and Diana Ross. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, she, when they, after Prince passed away and they did the tribute, she actually sang all the songs and led the band. So, uh, yeah, I spent a year on the road uh, traveling with Sheila. Uh, Wawa Watson was also in the band. He played with Michael Jackson, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, and yeah. all that off-the-wall stuff uh, that Michael Jackson did. He was a guitar player, and Gavin was the singer. Uh, my brother-in-law, Nate, uh, he also played second keyboard in that group with, with uh, Herbie Hancock. Uh, the drummer was uh, Alphonse Muzan, played with a group called Weather Report. They had the first ever... Uh, uh, gold album as a jazz group. So it was literally an, an all-star group and, and really great musicianship. When you're on tour with them, you're on the road, what do you guys talk about? I mean, what do you talk to Sheila E? Do you, what do you call her, Sheila? Or Sheila, Sheila E? I, I mean, I would just stand out, you know. I, I would just <laughs> ask every question a about Prince. People, <laughs> people don't realize that even when you're at the biggest level, you could be the Beatles or you could be the Rolling Stones. And the way they set up the gigs, they're about 150 to 200 miles apart. Mm -hmm. You may fly to a, a geographical area, like say may, you might start in San Diego, and then you're going to go to Los Angeles and then Fresno and then San Francisco and then Sacramento and then Portland. And, and so most of the time you're on a bus. Yeah. And Maybe there it was called consolidated uh, busing line at the time, and these were three hundred thousand dollar buses that had previously been owned by Howard Hughes that literally had gold plated sinks in them. Wow! After a while, they have nine bunks, and of course, there's ten guys and somebody sleeping in the back. But a bus is a bus is a bus, and after a while, you start to get on each other's nerves, no matter what. So there's always tension and. You know, it, it, like it's like a family. Uh, you know, you have two and they get along part of the time and they fight part of the time. You have three at any given time, two of them are fighting. That's kind of the way it is in a big musical group. There was always, you know, politics and different stuff going on and tension. And so it's difficult uh, to, even when you're making a lot of money at the highest level, most of the time you're traveling on a bus. You have any roadie stories that you can um, t say or no? <laughs> well, time I remember, and I'll tell you a little, this is a pretty interesting story. And we stayed at the uh, New York Sheraton there by 57th in, in uh, near a little above uh, Times Square. And uh, for 30 days, well, it was actually in 34 days, we played 31 gigs. Whoa. Every single night. And you want me to tell you a little, that little story about when, when I lived at the New York Sheraton for, uh, for a month there uh, back in 19, probably 1978. Anyway, I came down and uh, as I was walking through the lobby, I was getting ready to go outside and this big limo pulled up in the front. And so when I walked out the door, I saw Muhammad Ali get out of the, uh, uh -huh. out of the limo. And he had this guy that got out behind him. He, he, I found out later, he was six feet nine. And he just let Muhammad walk down the street a little bit. And of course, when I 
when I saw him, I was just so excited because he's been, he'd been my idol since I was 10 years old. And I just ran down to him. Yeah. As I ran up to him, the the big guy with the he later I learned he was a blade man is what he said. And he started to step up and tell me, ho, ho, no, no, you can't go there. And Muhammad said, no, no, it's all right. Let him go. And so I started telling him, listen, you've been my idol since I was 10 years old. And, and, uh, and I, I, I want to get your autograph. And he said, okay. And so I reached in my pocket. And the only thing that I had in there was a envelope that had a couple of buds in it. So I pulled <laughs> it out and I grabbed the pen and I gave it to him and I, I just handed him the envelope and he, he tried to write his name and the, and the pen kept sticking through the envelope. He looked inside and he said, is this the good shit or what? <laughs> so I got Muhammad Ali's autograph, but, it, but it's got a couple of holes in it and and that's all I had to write on was a, an envelope that had a couple of marijuana buds in it. <laughs> Do you still have it? Do you have it, Frank? I don't know oh. what happened to it now. Oh, uh, that would be amazing. Another time as well. And that is something that, you know, over the years, this is, I don't know, 1970, 87, 97, like 40-something oh. years ago. So I, I don't know what happened to his autograph. I certainly wish I had it now. Oh, that's amazing. Just to even hear that story. It's funny how you how you meet your idols, when and where, and how. And yours is quite interesting. I mean, he's probably thinking, is he trying to give me some some kind of, like, something? <laughs> all he right. He knew exactly what it was. He knew exactly. Now, out of all of those, you know, your life as a rock star, I mean, I would just say you were a rock star. What, 13 years, I would say? Maybe? Well, I joined the Musicians Union at 15, and I retired at 33. So, over 18 years. 18 years. And you stopped. You, you, were, you made your money at a very young age. You have accomplished all your dreams. You are a young rock star living every rock star's dream at a young age, just playing the world, doing what you love to do. Why did you stop? Because I had three young girls. Oh, yes, that's right. You are and a father of three. It very difficult to kiss them goodbye and say, well, I'm going on tour. We'll see you in five months. I mean, yeah. Tower Power used to play, you know, over 250 gigs a year, and I would be on the road and gone at least 10 months a year. Yeah. It's really hard, you know, when you've got kids uh, and to try to raise them. And, and uh, actually, I had two kids at the time. I retired in 1983, and then my third daughter was born in 1984. But I started looking for some other way to, to provide for my family, and a, a guy that had lived with my Bruce's older brother mm -hmm. uh, when they went to school at USC, he had uh, got his master's degree, and so he initially I acquired the rights to the to this technology. It was called an inductively coupled plasma atomic emission spectrometer, about the size of a pickup truck. Cost the, wait, can you say that a little slower? That had. So many syllables, and it sounded well, like it has 30 letters ICP in it. ICP spectrometer, but Wait. the acronym, it's an ICPAES, inductively coupled plasma atomic emission spectrometer. And eventually, <laughs> I learned how to operate the machine, and, and we got all the licenses and hired a team of doctors. And, of course, that was the uh, Balco Laboratories that, that developed thereafter that 
had a long history uh, working with world-class athletes. Well, we were just going to start getting into that. So you wrapped up your touring days. You said goodbye to that, 1983, 1984. I just learned a little bit of the history of how it started. The notorious Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, a sports nutrition center, was born. All right, Belco. You went down a very slippery slope. You know, it's uh, you. You have no medical background at all, correct? And you never were you I've, good in science and chemistry. Called, <laughs> I've, in Sports Illustrated, they called me an autodidact. That just means somebody who's self-taught. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. mean that I didn't hire a lot of very smart people, MDs, yeah. PhDs, and learn from them. And actually, the medical director in 1984, when I first uh, founded Balco. Uh, I found him in the yellow pages. And you he, did wait. You he, hold on. <laughs> he, he was a neurosurgeon, and he was attending Stanford at the time, and and he was originally from uh, South Africa. And he took me down to the Lane Medical Library at Stanford University, and and helped me get a um, a library card. And mm -hmm. then this is when computers first came out. Um, you know, the the PC in the early 80s, but 1984. We went to a trade show and bought a clone uh, computer, and the hard drive at the time was five megabyte. Five? Five megabyte. This is when they first <laughs> came out, and you had the scratchy telephone connection. Yeah. And, and there were two computer uh, uh, monitors at the time. This is before, you know, Apple came out with the the uh, that boxy computer mm -hmm. and. So he taught me how to tap into the National Library of Medicine and okay. he'd get this scratchy telephone line and I would tap in and then I would type in, there were two types of monitors, amber and green, and that was it. We had an amber and all you had was characters, there was no graphics. But I would type in keywords like zinc and muscle strength or copper and connective tissue or magnesium and muscle cramps and I would do these searches and I would find these references and then I spent 60, 70 hours a week crawling around on my hands and knees at the Lane Medical Library of Stanford, teaching myself all about mineral and trace element metabolism. And then right away, they called it Victor's Knack. Uh, the first thing I did in, in 1985 was, was hook up with a, uh, a coach, a track coach named Bill Dellinger. He was the United States Olympic track coach for the Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 1984. And uh, so I flew up to the University of Oregon, and one of his star athletes at the time was Alberto Salazar, mm -hmm. who was the world record holder in the marathon and had won the New York City Marathon two, three years in a row. And I started working with him, and thereafter I started working with some of the San Francisco 49ers, and then eventually I met uh, Bill Romanowski, who he'd already left the Niners uh, after they'd won a, a Super Bowl or two and went to Philadelphia. And that's where he was at when I started working with him. And then he uh, went to Denver, and I actually went to the training camp in 1997 and 98 and collected blood on all the, the entire team, including John Elway and Terrell Davis and Steve Atwater and Shannon Sharp and all the stars. And, and long story short, uh, they won back-to-back -back Super Bowls. And I had provided blood testing and then nutritional supplementation 
all the way from training camp of those 85 guys until they whittled the team down to whatever it is, 53, and then they won the Super Bowl, and then they won the Super Bowl again. And thereafter, I worked with other teams like Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins in the 80s. I had a very successful uh, period of time and worked with over 250 NFL players in, in, the, in the 1990s. Wow, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty impressive because, you know, Balco, when you started this, you, there was obviously no intention of where it would end up going. You start, you hooked up with a, you connected, well, not, I want to say hooked up or connected, but you teamed up with a bodybuilding chemist and you guys created, let me see if I can say this. The short word is the clear, tetrahydrogestronon. Pretty good, tetrahydrogestronone, yes. Oh, okay, pretty, I mean, I wrote it phonetically. PhD, it's, the clear. PhD, the clear, the clear. Now, the, that is obviously, it's undetectable. I know that you were not planning on going down a path of maybe, you know, doing dirty things. How did you go from becoming a musician to starting this sports nutrition center to becoming the most well-known PEDS distributor slash you're the guy to go to, to get that edge. How did that happen, Victor? Well, okay, you just so don't wake up one day and say, I want to be the Adolf Hitler of sports. No, it, let's <laughs> put it into perspective. Balco started in 1984. Yeah. So I worked with many, many world-class athletes in many sports. Mm -hmm. I went to the Olympics in, in 1988. I had done blood testing and provided supplementation to 25 athletes that brought back 15 medals from yeah. Seoul. Now, the total medal count was 97, so somewhere close to 20% of the medals that were won by the U.S. at the time. And there was actually an article that was on the front page of the sports of the San Francisco Examiner. That used to be the Sunday edition of the Chronicle here. And it was called Getting Athletes in Tune. Okay. And so for 16 years, I was completely above board. There was no type of performance-enhancing drugs involved. I had helped athletes win Super Bowl championships. And I worked with many tennis players and, and uh, track and field athletes and so on. And then that's when in, in 1999, actually, uh, at the end of the year, I met Patrick Arnold at the Mr. Olympia in yeah. Las Vegas, the, the expo that they had there. And he told me that he had some stuff that seemed to help athletes recover. He didn't tell me that it was an anabolic steroid named Norbolethone. And actually the bottle that I got from him, I, I bought for $150. That's what it was called was stuff. S-T-U-F-F. Okay, Victor. So when you read a bottle that says Stuff. It's not even an acronym that didn't raise any red flags. No, don't do this. And he didn't tell me what it was. I learned later. And then, of course, there was called Nor stuff. And then the the other was called uh, Trend stuff, which which the THG was similar in structure to an anabolic steroid, Trembolone. And then there was another third one as well. I, I never gave it to any athletes, although I took it myself. But uh, what happened was I had the ability, because I owned a clinical laboratory, to do testing uh, on urine samples for all of the, the performance-enhancing anabolic steroids at the time. And so I took it myself, 
and I did what they call a suppression test. That means I took it, and then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, I collected urine, and I could see that it suppressed uh, the androgen. Uh, it, it had an affinity for the androgen receptors, and it was lowering my own testosterone level. That's when the first clue came that this had anabolic properties, but okay. it was undetectable. How did you, did, was this injectable in your in No, your no, it was oral. Oh, no, it was oral. Okay. <laughs> you actually took an eyedropper and uh -huh. put it inside the bottle, and then you, you put a couple of drops under your tongue, but you would measure out an amount. Mm -hmm. And then I also developed something called the, the, the cream, and at the time, I was already 47 years old. No, by, by that time, I was, let's see, so I was 50 in, in 2000, so I was 49, 50 years old. And I knew that this was undetectable, but if it saturated the receptor and reduced your own testosterone level, then that would become a red flag for the testers. So I had gotten a testosterone prescription, had my blood tested and, and got a prescription for uh, testosterone cream. And so the protocol that I created was they would take the clear, which was the THG on Monday, the cream on Tuesday to bring back the testosterone level to normal, again on Wednesday with the clear and the cream on Thursday, and then go off on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it was a four-day-a-week protocol, and there was a month supply. And at the same time, I was testing everybody's blood and looking at liver enzymes and cholesterol fractions and, you know, any of the parameters that mean that it would be causing adverse health effects. Mm -hmm. So I made everybody test, and they used to call it Victor's short leash because if they didn't do the blood test to make sure that we didn't have adverse health effects, then that, that would be the last batch that they got. So anyway, I was trying to do what most of these athletes were already doing, which was using steroids yeah. and other growth hormone and EPO and different drugs, but I was trying to do it in a more safe and effective manner. And what led to this was I'd met a guy who was with, at that time, it was called TAC, the Athletic Congress. Mm -hmm. Later, it's now called the United States Track and Field. And he was at the Olympics in 88, and I met him again in 1992 uh, at the track and field uh, championships in New Orleans. And afterwards, he called me up and he said, hey, uh, your boy tested positive. I said, what do you mean? And he talked about one of the shot putters that I was working with had tested positive for Dianabol. So I called Greg and I said, Greg, were you taking Dianabol? And, and he, said, he said, yeah. And I said, well, I just got told that you tested positive. Oh. And he goes, oh, my God, my wife, Mary, she's going to kill me. I'm going to have to get a job now. You know? <laughs> That's what he was worried about. <laughs> a few days later, this guy, Japanese fellow that was from Torrance, California at the time, he called me back and said, listen, I, I had a meeting. One of the elder statesmen at, uh, at TAC or USA Track and Field passed away, and some of the guys got together, and they decided there were five positive drug tests. Uh, one of them was a 400-meter hurdler. Another one was a, uh, was a high jumper. And, and one of them was my friend Greg, the shot putter. He was on the 88 Olympic team. And he said, listen, they've decided that uh, they're going to go ahead and sweep this under the rug, so tell your boys off the hook. Oh, my God. Well, this is when I learned at the very highest level, all the way to people at the Olympic Games, and I had direct knowledge that they were covering up positive drug tests. What year was this? This kind of led me to believe that if everybody, and I don't want to say too much about, you know, 
like television networks that broadcast and on down and, and who it is that actually, you know, controls what positive test results come out and which ones don't. And then I learned that other very, very famous track and field athletes uh, at the 88 Olympics, including the most famous sister-in-laws who were on the front cover of Time magazine and so on, had also tested positive, but this had all been covered up. This kind of changed my approach. And I thought, listen, it, it, and of course it was a mistake to think this, but my rationale was it's not cheating if everyone's doing it. And if you have yeah, knowledge that I, I wouldn't say everyone, that's a bad word to use, but majority. let's say the overwhelming majority overwhelming. of elite athletes at the Olympic Games level were using some sort of performance enhancing substances at least during that year before the, the actual Olympic Games occurred. And that kind of made me think, well, this is undetectable. It's not, you know, it's not on the list. No, no one knows about this. Well, like, and, think about this. And eventually, and eventually, I did start giving people growth hormone and EPO and a whole array of drugs. And, and as you know, then this went on to, uh, in 2000 in Sydney, Australia, I went to the Olympics there. And of course, then Marion Jones, the drive for five, you know, she was on mm -hmm. all the magazine covers and won five medals and so on. And, but eventually, uh, yes, I was giving performance enhancing substances to, to world-class athletes. And, uh, you know, it's come out now that as an example in 1988, I don't know if you saw that special call 979. It's a part of the 3030. Uh, I, I saw part of it. I saw part of it. Yeah. Anyway, they linked eight of the nine finalists in the hundred meters together along with Ben Johnson, who tested positive as all using performance enhancing drugs. So it's very rampant. Uh, it's just a part of the culture. Um, you know, athletes, what I have learned is that they're going to do what they have to do in order to be competitive. And if they believe that their, their, uh, competition is doing stuff, then it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they're going to do what they have to do to try to try to win. You know, you, since you, you got yourself, or you were involved in the 88 Olympics, imagine the Olympics before that. And then the Olympics before that, how prevalent, uh, steroid use heads were, and you just happen to kind of fall into it. And then well, you really went down that rabbit hole, Victor. But let's put this into perspective. They didn't even have out of competition random drug testing until 1990. So at the Olympic Games, when I went, they, they would test you at the games, but all they would do is take drugs for a year, you know, and then go to the trials and taper off two, three weeks ahead of time and then test negative and then go on to the Olympics. But when you're using, you know, growth hormone, EPO, anabolic steroids uh, in, in conjunction with an intense weight training program, you're going, those gains are going to carry over months and months later. So yeah. I knew that, you know, many of these athletes and some, not only were they using drugs, but when they tested positive, their results were being covered up. So they started random testing in, in 1990. And of course, thereafter, uh, there, I knew that it was very easy to circumvent mm -hmm. and the, the testing. And that's what it was. It was really a competition, not only amongst the athletes, uh, but against those who had some of the best chemists in the world. I mean, you've said it, you said this in interviews and uh, Martin Bashir's interview on 2020, the whole history of the Olympic games is just full of corruption, cover up, 
of performing enhancing drug use. That's a very, very bold, bold, bold statement. I mean, you can say that because you've been in that world. For us, for me as a, a fan to watch it, when Marion Jones, when she got busted, when uh, Flo Jo passed away, I mean, these were things that I couldn't even understand. I'm like, whoa, how, how did they die? I mean, they were really taking, what was it? Um, Fedra. That's, I thought maybe they were taking a Fedra. I'm like, Oh, no. that's just over-the-counter stuff. Here's and I'm like, they died? But that was what I thought in my, when I was growing up. Here's something that's important for people to understand. Do you know why the World Anti-Doping Association was founded in 1999? Why? Now, you would think that it would be to protect the clean athletes. But that's not it at all. Really? The reason is because the sponsors of the Olympics went to the IOC and told them, we don't want our advertising dollars to be tarnished, so we want drug testing. So it wasn't for the athletes, it was for the sponsors. And that's why they implemented this. And of course, thereafter, there's all kinds of stories about samples being poured down the drain and, you know, uh, many, many athletes were testing positive uh, at their own national championships before going to the Olympic Games in 98, uh, or excuse me, in, in 1988, the Russians had a, a ship with a, with a testing laboratory that was parked there in Seoul. And they a would ship? The samples, yes, before they, before they would, uh, before they would so, so if they tested positive, they wouldn't let them compete. And this has now gone all the way to the highest level. The Dr. Uh, Diak, uh, who was the head of the, the IAAF, the International Track and Field Federation, they got him for taking bribes. He took over a million dollars. So some Russian athletes tested positive, and then they went and said, well, if you'd like to compete at the next Olympics, give me a million dollars and we'll make this positive test result go away. And of course, this stuff has been going on, and we know that the Russians were completely banned from the 2016 mm -hmm. Olympics. And so when I made those statements that you have corruption all the way from the top, and I'm talking the television networks that broadcast the, the Olympic Games all the way down, they all know that they're using performance-enhancing drugs, and they're looking the other way, and when they get, they decide what positive results come out and what don't. And, I, and I've said this before, that even back, you talk about Flojo and all these athletes. I was told by a very credible person from the United States that there were four positives there, not just Ben Johnson, the only one who tested positive after he won the gold medal and broke the world record, but that Flojo and Jackie uh, Joyner and Andre Phillips, who beat uh, – uh, Edwin Moses, who've been undefeated for like 110 races or something. And all of a sudden, those results were just swept under the rug. And if you notice what happened, shortly after that, they both retired. Mm -hmm. And Flojo never came back. Yeah. So, they, so I believe, my opinion is, is that she tested positive and they covered it up. But part of what the deal was, was that you have to retire and then they talked about why at the, the absolute peak of your economic earning potential would you decide to write children's books and do other things and no longer run in track and field when you could be making huge amounts of money. 
but this was a big deal. The, the two sisters were sister-in-laws were on the front cover of Time magazine. They'd won gold medals. Um, so when you have this sort of information from credible people on the inside, I made that decision, which to go down the slippery slope and everybody knows where that led. And it was yeah. not a fun life for a period of time when I had to go to a, a minimum security prison camp. Well, let's talk about, so you, these are some of the athletes. I'm going to name them all. Let's see if they're actually right. Benito Santiago, Jeremy Giambi, Bobby Estalea, Amando Rios, Sprinters, Dwayne Chambers, Marion Jones, Tim Montgomery, Raymond J. Smith, Zana, Zana Block? Is that Zana right? Block. Zana yeah, Block. Her, her maiden name was Pentuzovich, but, but she uh, later... Uh, married Mark Block, and, and yes, her okay. name was Donna Block. Kelly White. Mary Jones at the World Championships, by the way, in 2001. Oh, how interesting. Two of your own people. So Kelly White. And then Hammer Thrower, John McEwen. Shot Putters, Kevin Toth, CJ Hunter. Middle Distance Runners, Regina Jacobs. Boxer, Sugar Shane Mosley. And Cyclist, Tammy Thomas. Is that right? Am I missing anyone? I... Well, there's a lot more than that. Oh. I did work for Tammy Thomas, a lot of athletes that uh, set world records and won Olympic gold medals. And, and uh, everybody knows Barry Bonds the, is the all-time home run mm -hmm. uh, hitter, as well as the uh, single-season uh, home run record at, at 73. And many consider him to be one of the greatest baseball players ever to live. I mean, I, do, you've, you've stated that you did not – give anything to Barry Bonds. You weren't the one that allegedly injected or put the eyedropper in. Uh, is that true? Well, what I've said is I never even had a conversation with Barry Bonds about drugs, let alone gave him drugs. Okay. And if you put that into perspective, back then when he hit this record in 2001, there was no drug testing in baseball, period. Mm -hmm. So the drugs that I was giving to Marion Jones and others, these athletes were subjected to the so-called gold standard of Olympic caliber drug testing at the time. So we were ducking and dodging and circumventing and, and playing that game, uh, cat and mouse game, as they call it. But Barry didn't have to do any testing. So why would you want something like the clear, a diluted version, which you would call baby food when you can have a steak yeah. and you can inject and take all the hardcore testosterone or whatever drugs that you want to take? So he, Barry didn't need me. I did blood tests for him. I provided supplements to him. I helped him. I tested his father and his brother and, and became close to him in that regard. But that was one of those things that, he and I never had those discussions because he could do whatever he chose to do and didn't have to worry about testing. And my forte was helping people circumvent the Olympic caliber drug testing. You know, um, as you know, we had uh, Marion Jones put, she sued you for $25 million saying that she did not, you're a liar. And that, that just magically went away. 20, that's a big well, lawsuit. <laughs> I understand that, that, you know, these athletes at that time, she had a contract with American Express, with mm -hmm. General Motors, with Nike, 
I mean, she was all over television. She was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She was on the cover of Vogue magazine. So she was making a lot of money. So it's more the lawyers than it is the act, the actual uh, athletes. I, I never had any problem with Marion. But when they would come out and say, you know, this guy's a liar, this guy, you know, she didn't do any of this stuff and blah, 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 blah. I never talked about anybody. They brought in 40 athletes to testify before the Malco Grand Jury against me. And I had not talked about anybody until they started talking and telling lies about me. And then when that happened, then, of course, I decided I have the right to tell the truth. This is not what happened. And, of course, Marion and I had sat face-to-face, -face and I taught her how to inject growth hormone, and she put it right into her leg with me watching her in a hotel room down in Walnut, California at the Mount Sac Relays. So when I watched her on ESPN say, I'll tell you about this young lady right here, I have never taken any sort of, you know, I'm like, oh my God, this is Academy Award winning acting is what this is. And, but I still hold nothing against her. I believe that every single one of the girls that was in that 100 meter race against her in Sydney was also using performance enhancing substances. So there's a level playing field. It may just not be the one that everyone thinks it is. Yeah, thank you. So it's, that's, that's the tough part. And then the thing with Mosley, I never said anything about Shane Mosley whatsoever until he fought uh, Cotto at Madison Square Garden. And he came out, this is years after the, the raid. I, I don't know what year that fight was, but, but the raid was in 2003. So for like six, five years, I never, four years, I never said anything. And he said, oh, that guy, Conti, yeah, he duped me. He told me he was giving me vitamins and he gave me something else. And then the writers, of course, USA Today, New York Daily News, New York Times saying, you know, he said that you duped him, that you tricked him, that you misled him. And uh, the only thing I said was Shane Mosley knew exactly and precisely what he was taking. Now, that's the only thing I said. And four days later, uh, a $12 million, $12 million lawsuit case was filed. So between the two of them, Marion and, and Shane, that's... Uh, $37 million worth of frivolous, fraudulent light lawsuits that ultimately were both voluntarily dismissed, which means that I'm 2-0 and with two knockouts. How do you like it? Oh, my goodness. How do you like it? You were the one when the whole issue with BJ Saunders came out with this inhaler, and I'm like, we need to talk about this, this clenbuterol or whatever he, I, I, I honestly, I don't even, no, no, that was Canelo. We talked about him too, about that. And then we talked about BJ Saunders with this inhaler. And the more I was reading about a lot of these uh, PEDs, and I've known some of them, testosterone, HGH, clenbuterol, Cytomel, Lasix, Stanzanol, uh, Dianabol, Winstrol, inhalers, the stimulant. I did not realize how much of a masking agent that is. Like, well, he, it, he was, my opinion is that he was taking this it accelerates your, your metabolic rate, mm -hmm. your heart rate, and you burn more calories and it makes it easier to lose weight. Plus you can train nonstop. You're like yeah. the Energizer Bunny. So the, the problem with that is the following. VADA testing, they test for all prohibited substances at all times. Now, the Olympic caliber testing, which they call the gold standard, which it is not, by <laughs> any means, 
And the reason is because you're allowed to take stimulants in between competition. And they only test for stimulants on fight night or at the competition. So these drugs are very powerful. They help a boxer tremendously. They, the, they talk about uh, the, the uh, UKA anti-doping over there that, oh, we do the Olympic standard, but the Olympic standard allows you to use all the stimulants that you want during the off season or during training camp. And you stop, they'll clear in 72 hours. So you stop taking these drugs three days out from the fight and you test negative. So once he got into the real gold standard of testing, which is VADA, which tests once again for all substances at all times, now he all of a sudden he tests positive. What is the difference? Um, I, we've had this conversation before. The difference between VADA, UCAD, USADA, WADA. I know obviously the testing. Okay, so WADA doesn't do testing. WADA makes up all the policies and procedures and they give the accreditation to the Olympic certified laboratories. Okay. So they, like the only place that you can get a test for EPO is at an Olympic uh, accredited laboratory. So they don't do the testing. They set up the rules and they audit and they, they come and they do proficiency testing to make sure that you know what you're doing. But at the same time, those rules have loopholes so big you can drive a Mack truck through them. Why would you let a boxer take cocaine and methamphetamine and all these other drugs to lose weight and have tons of energy as they're preparing for a fight? Why? Does it give you an edge? Absolutely it does. So they, I don't like the idea that you have two sets in competition and out of competition uh, prohibited substances list. There needs to be, needs to be all performance enhancing drugs tested for at all times. That's the gold standard. That's VADA and no one else is doing that. Okay. Well, you know, I, like I said, I the just, one that, that pushed very hard for the testing mm -hmm. and convinced Demetrius and his manager. And did you know, did you have a, did you, did oh, I strongly suspected that BJ was using drugs. Yes. Okay. What, what made you think that? Who, who loses 30 pounds in 30 days? Uh, okay, yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, so look at him <laughs> win 185, and the next day, the, a month later, he's at 160. So, mm -hmm. listen, I wasn't born yesterday, okay? Yeah. So, it is what it is. Now, in hindsight, looking back, maybe I should have just shut my mouth and let Demetrius whoop his ass, because he had no chance against Boo Boo, trust me. You have... You, you said this, and people have said this. I've, re I've read this in articles about you. You are a genius at circumventing tests, and that's how you were able to make Belco so incredibly popular. Um, when, how did it, how does, a, does an athlete just come up to you and say, hey, I know you can help me? Like, how does one come find you or... Are you in like the dark, the black market? I mean, that sounds so stupid, but how does this work? How, okay, when you were, me, when you were that. Something. From way back then, all yeah. the way from 1984 when Balco was founded, until now, the athletes that I work with are selected by me and sponsored by me. They don't pay me. Barry Bonds didn't pay me. Marion Jones didn't pay me. So I select who it is I want to work with. 
they comply with the rules that, that I set, which means that they have to be tested frequently. Uh, and I mean health parameter tested so that there's no side effects. And this is even back in the day. But, but even now, people think that I made lots of money from all these athletes who make lots of money, which is not true, other than maybe four or five of the Oakland Raiders that might have paid me a small amount of money back in 2002, I would say close to 98% of all athletes I ever worked with never paid me a penny. So it wasn't about the money. You had was, money already. <laughs> it was about, I already had money. That's what happened is the, the product that I developed, ZMA, in, in 1996, and research came out supportive of, of the formula in 1998, and then it hit the... Uh, uh, all 9,000 GNCs in the year 2000, and I had four different brands there, and I was already making multi-millions of dollars, and what did I like to do as a hobby? I, I didn't like golf. I liked being in the trenches with world-class athletes, so I would select which athletes that I had good chemistry with and that I wanted to help and support, and I sponsored them, and I've been sponsoring athletes for, for many, many years. You know, it's a funny, it's a funny story when... Um I was doing my research and I called one of my friends. He was a bodybuilder and I've known him for years. And I remember he told me this story. I think I was like 25. And uh, he said, oh, where I go, I, I knew he was juicing. I just knew it. I mean, you can't, you can't look like that. It's and, a mandate. And, yeah. So, it's the only sport where you, you absolutely have to use drugs to be able to compete. So and, it's not 99, it's 100% of It's 100% is anabolic steroids. And the funny thing is, is that he told me, he goes, oh my goodness, and the guy that I get my stuff from or like whatever, they got raided. And I'm thinking, and I remember, it, it jogged my memory. And when I kept reading Balco and I'm like, why does that name sound so familiar? And he's like, he's up north or something. It was you. I knew about you since then. And I didn't even know that. People don't realize, <laughs> but... Ronnie Coleman, who's an eight-time yeah. Olympia, Flex Wheeler, Milo Sarchev, uh, Kevin Lavrone, Chris Cormier. I went to, in 1998, in May, I went to a San Francisco Pro Invitational. And the guy that put this on, for whatever reason, knew that I'd worked with a lot of world-class athletes. And he said, Victor, why don't you come up and tell everybody what it is that you do? I had no idea that he was going to do this. And I was uh, working with Milo Sarchez at, at, at the time. And so I got up and, and I started talking to everybody and several guys had questions. So I made an offer to all 25 guys that were there competing at this show that I would show up the morning with a nurse, the morning after the competition, and collect blood from all of them and urine from all of them and then give them a... a uh, you know, a comprehensive evaluation and set of recommendations. And Milos got up and he said, oh, trust me, everybody wants to do this because he can tell you whether or not the anabolic steroids that you're taking are real or not. <laughs> and they were like, oh, so, so that next morning, I think like 22 out of the 25 showed up and I had them fill out a questionnaire and it, and made them list all of the drugs that they were taking and all the vitamins and other supplements that they were taking. Then when their urine samples came back, I said, well, you know this stuff that you think you're taking? It's not that, it's just testosterone. And oh. you know this drug that you think you're taking? It's Wenstrol, 
these are fake tablets. You're not, oh my uh -huh. God, <laughs> I'll call my supplier immediately. So it, it was, I wasn't giving them drugs because they already had all their own drugs, but I was helping them to do testing to take a look at liver function, kidney function, cholesterol fractions, all these other things that, that are important for them to know. I recruited some of these guys, including Ronnie Coleman and Flex Wheeler. We did a genetic uh, test to find out if they had, you know, a certain uh, uh, missing uh, link there that in, in their genetics. And th this was all, all published. But the point is, I did work with some of the top pro bodybuilders in the world for many years. And so I learned a lot about uh, anabolic steroids and growth hormone and insulin and, and all the rest did of it. Did you take it yourself? Did you, did, I'm sorry, did you stack any of these yourself? From 1996 until 2003, I did use anabolic steroids and growth hormone and, and little testosterone, Winstrol and, and GH. Were you jacked? Were you, were you lifting? And uh, yeah, in 2003, right before uh, the Valco raid, I could bench press 340. And I, and I was a much, I was a lot leaner. I weighed 192 at the time. September 3rd, 2003, seven black Buicks pulled up in front of your Balco, uh laboratories the number one song of that day the day that you got raided and busted was shake your tail feather by nelly p diddy and murphy lee what happened that day for you well, let me say that that infamous balco raid that took place september 3rd 2003 was not a surprise to me they had been going through my trash on a weekly basis for an entire year ever since uh, August of, of 2002. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that shortly before the raid, we got a call from the owner of a building over the freeway and he said, hey, you guys need to keep, stop uh, putting your Balco trash in my dumpster for my building or I'm gonna call the cops. I said, listen, it's not us. We're not taking the, the trash and we're not putting it over there. Somebody, likely law enforcement, is stealing our trash. So eventually, they kept doing it. Jeff Nowitzki was, my understanding is he would take it home, look through it, and then take and discard it. First, he was putting it in the, the uh, high school bin where he went to school there at Mills High School. So it was all floor-to-ceiling glass, and he had to walk through the main office to get to my office, and I was standing there talking to somebody by the fax machine, and I looked out, and all of a sudden, plowing into the driveway was the first one, then another one came in, and it was on her corner, and it was just screech, 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 about six or seven Buicks. There were a total of 26 IRS and other special agents, customs, and all the rest of it. And so I'm looking at all this and just, you know, I was like frozen. And the next thing you know, here comes crashing through the door, federal agents, Anybody got any weapons? And they come through the door and I see all these guns being pointed at me and they go over here, sit down. And they sat the three of us down in chairs and kind of surrounded us in a, in a half moon. They're holding assault rifles. And so they went around all the rooms. It was a 7,000 square foot building and they labeled every room, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. Mm -hmm. And so while we're sitting there, a helicopter comes right over the top of the very front door. And up above the door, there were actually uh, glass louvers going across. 
and one of them shattered from the vibration of, of the helicopter. Oh, from the helicopter? And then, then I looked and I had a silver Mercedes at the time that was parked in, right outside the door. And then here comes CBS, ABC, NBC, all these trucks, all these satellites going up. Of course, it was that night, uh, that footage was all over the world. Now, February 13th, which was Friday the 13th, 2004. The number one song that day was Hey Ya by Outkast. That was the day that you were indicted on 42 counts. The U.S. Attorney, John Ashcroft, well, not Ashcroft, Ashcroft was the one that announced it. How, he's the U.S. Attorney. Your case went all the way up that high. Well, if you remember, that same month or, or very close to that time is when George W. Bush gave the talk, the State of the Union address, and mm -hmm. he talked about steroids and our children and Major League Baseball and we have to protect and, and so on. Well, that was and, you then, about you. Well, they were talking about me and, and why they decided, I have my own theory, I'll tell you what it is. I believe that the reason they made such a big deal of the Balco case was to use that as a distraction from the Iraq war. When they went in, if you know, you know, all this stuff now that's come out about the vice president and he had worked for Halliburton and they were supplying all this uh, uh, equipment for, for the war and, and there, it turns out that they didn't find any chemicals of mass destruction. Yet at that same time, here comes the public enemy number one named Victor Conti, who's the fall guy who's destroying all of our kids' future and single-handedly destroying Major League Baseball, the Dr. Frankenstein, the, the Saddam Hussein of sport. All of a sudden, why would they notify the media that they were going to raid my laboratory? have CBS, NBC, ABC, all these trucks there waiting down the street. So next thing you know, here's this massive scandal. And of course, they saw Barry Bonds, Marion Jones, all these world-class athletes, and they knew that this was going to be a big, big story. Well, that night, it was all over the world. It was on CNN. This was a massive story that here's this guy. And I guess what they saw was that Balco was like an octopus with all the tentacles going out that I was in every sport at the elite level. Tennis, swimming, basketball, baseball, football, track and field, you know, boxing. Mm -hmm. And so they realized with these kind of names that this was going to be a massive story. So thereafter, look at the money that they spent flying in 40, I repeat, 40 world-class athletes. They indicted me, and we'll talk about that later, but it took six months from September 3rd until February the 13th for them to bring the 42-count indictment. And, of course, I guess we can talk about that later, but I still don't understand why, because ultimately you know that I pled to sharing a testosterone prescription and without cooperating at all in any way, shape, or form and accepting full consequences I got four months in a minimum security prison. Now, they had said that I was a modern day Al Capone, that I was going to prison. Did any of them reach out to you 
and say, are you going to rat me out? Are you going to say something? Are you going to disclose our, the relationship that we had? Or, because a lot of people now say that you're a rat. There were a couple dummies that called me. <laughs> and they're being, and they're, and they're tracing their calls and listening. You might imagine that what I would say is, listen, whatever you do, tell the truth, okay? I mean, I don't know what they would be thinking about from the moment that that happened. I assumed that they were listening to everything that I did. They raided my home. They raided my lab. They came back and raided my home a second time. So mm -hmm. I assumed my entire house was bugged. So yeah. there were times when, when my wife and I would have to go out in the backyard and stand in the middle of the, of the yard and whisper to each other just thinking we might have some privacy. That's because so I, I've been raided with SWAT teams three times. They, they came back a year later when, when Troy Ellerman leaked the grand jury transcript to a San Francisco Chronicle a writer, and for some reason they thought it was me, and of course it turned out that it had nothing to do with me. But they came and raided my house, raided my office, took all my computers, all of my files, violated all my Second Amendment, Sixth Amendment rights. December 1st, 2005, you surrendered. That day, the day you surrendered, the number one song was Because of You by Kelly Clarkson. Yes, I self-surrendered that day. Yeah. And trust me, I was not treated like any other person that was headed for a minimum security prison. When I came in, the first thing they did is grab me. I'd actually come in the day before, and, and my wife was there with me, and they wouldn't even let me kiss her goodbye. I, I mean, they dragged me through the metal detector, and it was toes and nose against the wall. And they handcuffed me and shackled me. And I mean, this was like, uh, who knew what was going to happen from that point? And then they put you through psychological evaluation. I, I had a flu bug at the time. They put me in a room where it was freezing cold. And then eventually, they took me over to what they call the shoe. And for people that don't know what the shoe is, that's the special housing unit where they put you for punishment. Okay, when you get in trouble, you go to the hole, you go to the shoe. <laughs> so when I got in there, I didn't know what was going on other than, and this was probably on purpose, they left the lights on all night. So they, I was wearing an orange jumpsuit. They gave me a little thin mattress that didn't even have any padding in it. It was freezing. I, I looked outside, I was on the second story, and I looked out where you could see onto the yard, and all this is burned into my brain, and on the glass where the bars were, somebody had etched L.A. Meth Monster. There <laughs> was etchings all over in the metal. So, of course, I couldn't sleep all night. I had this flu. The next day, they, they literally feed you like a dog. They come and, you know, through a... a, a hole or a slot in the wall. So when I came out Saturday morning, here's this beautiful park setting. And so I look up and here's this big like billboard and it said sports complex, basketball, baseball, football, bocce ball, tennis, uh, handball, soccer. I see all this. I'm like, wow. And so I kind of start walking over toward the, uh, the rec center. And I go inside the rec center. There's six pool tables, six foosball tables. I hear music. Next thing you know, I go in this room. There's 30 guitars, six basses. They've got 
three studios with um, bands that played every Friday night on the compound so that we're rehearsing. This is a jail? So I come out, I come out, some guys, they walk up and they recognize me. So I walk around the track. So when I first get there, I get to the far side and I go, is it, I said, are they smoking weed? He goes, yeah, you want some weed? I go, no. <laughs> I don't want no weed. He goes, you want some Coke? No, no. You want some blow? You want some steroids? No, no. Oh, my God. I, I don't want to do anything bad. I don't want to Well, come to find out all this was available and more. Oh. So when they say club fed, trust me. And the reason is there's no fences whatsoever. And they got a couple of guards that walk around the place. So as soon as they get past where they are, the family members come in and they hide stuff under rocks. And then they wait and some guys watch where the guys are walking and they run out. Next thing you know, they got Nike tennis shoes, Oakley glasses, <laughs> you know, every kind of alcohol you want. Uh, $20 for eight ounces. You want tequila, you want vodka, you want whiskey, you name it. Every Friday night, everybody's drunk, smoking weed. They, they got steroids. Wow. I, did, did you ever feel that when they would offer you things, they were maybe setting you up, trying to see if you take Trust me, I never did anything bad when I was in there. I would like, be too oh. scared to. I mean, but did you feel guilty for ever creating Balco? Of course. Many, many people were damaged. I mean, it just, uh, that's something that is the hardest thing. It's difficult to forgive other people, but it's even more for di difficult to forgive yourself. Okay. And I felt after all the names that I've been called, and I worked through all of that. I realized that, you know what? We do live in a society of second chances, and uh, I'm going to do my best to become a role model. And there's a lot of people have made mistakes and show them that you, you do have a second opportunity and that you can be successful, you can be rich, and you can be happy after you've made those mistakes. You know, before we get into snack uh, and touch on snack for a little bit, uh, there was something that I read. Balco steroid scandal was the foundation event of what baseball historians and journalists have come to call the steroid era. A catchy, wait, uh, a, catch a catchy title that eradicates the performance enhancing substances, substances from the game and the memories from the dark past. Sorry, I couldn't read my writing. It's funny that they say that was a steroid scandal, but it's still continuing. It's still, we're 2020. And there, maybe the Balco era is over, but now the snack era has started, which is not uh, steroids in any way. But many people think that all the knowledge that you have, you're just moving it into a different arena and circumventing with, by using vitamins and supplements. Can you just, in a very, very brief, why did you start snack? And uh, why did you, why do you feel that you're the best role model to be able to help athletes perform at their highest without giving PEDS now? Well, I didn't just start snack, even though snack is, is more famous now than it was in the past, but I started Balco in 1984 mm -hmm. and I started snack in 1987 and, and actually incorporated snack in, in 1988. And the reason is I started out doing blood testing. And then when I found depletions and deficiencies of different minerals and trace elements, I would go buy those or send people out to buy zinc or copper or magnesium or whatever it was that they needed. And then they would take them on a 
daily basis for six weeks, and then I would retest, and I would find that the mineral and trace element levels didn't change. And then I discovered the reason why, and it's because there are so many competitive and antagonistic interactions between the various minerals that you have to take them at a different time of the day. So I developed, initially, snack was an individual line of minerals and trace elements, and certain ones you can take together, and they're not competitive in terms of intestinal absorption, like, say, chromium and copper in the morning, or iron and selenium in the afternoon, and then zinc and magnesium at night. And, of course, depending upon their blood values, that would determine what the dosage should be. So I actually had them all color-coded, yellow in the morning, red in the afternoon, and, and blue at night. And then those now, over the years, have vitalized as the morning and, and aerobatine, and, and these are in the afternoon. And then, of course, ZMA is the combination of zinc and magnesium with B6 that, that you take at night. So I, throughout the whole period of time, I had the snack supplements, and I was giving those to all the athletes, including the two-time world champion, Super Bowl champion Denver Broncos and, and all those famous athletes. So I always had snack. It's just the publicity behind the infamous raid. A lot of people have asked and said that you worked with Lamont Peterson when he got in trouble. Did you work with him? No. At that, okay, no, I, I wanted to clarify that because some people said yes and some people said no. So at least no, I, I didn't. Your mouth. That's a very, very interesting topic because somebody that I know sent him to that doctor, John A. Thompson in, in Las Vegas, and he went to him, and if you understand the way this works, if you overtrain, it will suppress free testosterone. But if you just take a three or four day break, it'll bounce back. But his total testosterone, I believe it was around 563, which is perfectly normal. But this particular doctor, he just saw this low free testosterone and said, turn around. And there's something called Testopel. And they use something called a... a, a it's a little plunger, and they just make an incision in your buttocks, and it's about the size of a, a grain of rice. Uh -huh. Insert this into your buttocks with this little plunger, put a Band-Aid on it, and that doubles your testosterone level for five months, and then you come back, and it's like getting the oil changed in your car, and they take it out, and they put a new one in. So what had happened is he fought in D.C. He fought Amir Khan, and, and Lamont beat Amir right? And uh -huh. got the title. And he was tested using the, the state commission testing where the TE ratio was six to one. Yet when he tested with Vada, who used a four to one, he came back and he was at 3.77 to one, but his carbon isotope ratio testing called IRMS as well, which can differentiate between synthetic testosterone made from yams and, and soy and endogenous from your body made by cholesterol, and they popped him. Well, he thought that he could get away with this, I'm sure, because he had already beat the state commission test with the pellet in his butt. Oh. And somebody who told me that actually, I'm not gonna say these names, but very high profile names in boxing, um, that one of the coaches sent them to this doctor in Las Vegas, and he told me that he wouldn't be surprised if there were more than a hundred professional boxers that had these pellets in their butt. You have to take a significant dosage of testosterone, but that was just a way that you could circumvent. And that whole idea 
of how you can bust these people that are doing this, which is, see, in Olympic caliber testing, they do the TE ratio test. And only if you test positive or you're above four to one, which is a positive, as a confirmatory test, they do the carbon isotope ratio. So if you remember back in, I think, 2006 with Floyd Landis, and he had an 11 to one TE ratio, and of course, they joked later that, that maybe uh, that he got drunk between a couple of the stages and the testosterone patch that he had on his balls that he forgot to take it off. <laughs> and that's why he tested positive. But anyway, they introduced this other carbon isotope ratio test as a confirmatory test so that they could ban him. So bottom line is what I told, you know, Margaret Goodman at, at VADA was, Every single sample that you collect, because people can easily circumvent the TE ratio, you need to do this carbon isotope ratio test. And if you remember, one of the first people that she popped was Lamont Peterson. And then that story turns out that he was using a, a pellet as opposed to an oral or injectable form of testosterone. I want to ask you, out of all the athletes or anyone that you've worked with when you've shot, have you ever had any issues with any of the athletes that started kind of looking like a girl a little yeah. bit too much yeah a, a, famous, <laughs> a very famous baseball player developed they call it gynecomastia yes. hits. and uh, he actually dove into one of the bases trying to steal a base on his chest and it just absolutely the pain was excruciating and did eventually have to have surgery but when you take when you have an excess of testosterone part of it converts to estrogen Yes. And part of it converts to DHT or dehydrotestosterone, which makes your hair fall out. But you are doing something positive for the sport. You are helping athletes to train in a more efficient and effective way. You've had uh, Mikey Garcia in camp. I, I went up to snack and trained with him in the way he trains. Totally different, totally different stuff. Uh, Devin Haney, Nonito Donaire. Uh, Demetrius Andrade, uh, the list goes on. Uh, well, she just Caleb retired. Plant. Caleb Plant. Oh, yes, Caleb Plant, um, Andy Vences. I mean, the list just goes on. Do you, uh, oh, what's her name also? Uh, Fran Chong. And the reason, let's talk about this a little bit, that it's so important to have testing more so in women boxing than in male boxing because a male has 10 times the amount of testosterone naturally compared to a female. Yeah. So when you give a female, and we, and uh, there's an article that's in Ring Magazine. Uh, I did an interview with Thomas Hauser that just recently came out where I talk about, you know, world-class sprinters and, and the Kelly Whites and Marion Jones and the, these athletes. But we would typically see that with a female, if you gave them anabolic steroids, you could improve their 100 meter time by four tenths of a second or four meters. A male, you would improve by maybe two tenths of a second or two meters. So the effects on a female are probably double what they are on a male. Now, imagine if you double the increase in punching power for a female compared to a male, the damage that that's going to do to a female opponent. So it's critically important that somebody step up and provide sponsorship or... If you were to do it all over again, after you finished Herbie Hancock, you, you finished touring as a musician, what do you think you 
would do if you were able to go back in time and change your life? You know something? I've thought about this a lot. I wouldn't want to go through all this again. Mm -hmm. I would not. But when I think about selectively being there at the Olympic Games with Marion Jones when she ran 1075 in the 100 meters, and it was a triple fold out in Sports Illustrated. She won by over four meters. It was raining. It was cold, horrible. These other girls that got the silver and, and bronze had run way faster. She would have probably broke Flojo's world record under, under good conditions. Being there and watching that performance and being a part of that, and being in, in the AT&T Stadium, sitting right by first base, watching Barry Bonds smash home runs into McCovey Cove and becoming the, the greatest all-time hitter as well as a single-season record holder, and being there and a part of that, and whatever small part that I played in any of the athletes' uh, successes over the years, I don't think I would want to take those moments away. And that is the saying, the only way to win big is to bet big. And my parents really were not risk takers and they, they bet small in many ways in their life. And I think they could have done a lot more, but they just didn't want to take the risk. And I became determined that I'm, I'm going to go for the home run. I'm not going to be a guy trying to bunt or a guy trying to hit a single. I'm going to, I'm going to go for the home run. And what you have to understand is that every single season, if you go back and you look at the statistics, let's just isolate Major League Baseball. The same guys who hit the most home runs also have the most strikeouts. So you can't win big unless you bet big. And I, that was a choice that I made at a young age that I was going to go for it. I was going to drop out of school. I was going to be a so-called junior college dropout that, that uh, you know, I wanted to – be a rock star. I wanted to play with great musicians. I wanted to travel all over the world. I believe that I could do it. I, at 18 years old, the first time I moved to Los Angeles, I found a little book called the science of mind magazine. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, oh, there is a book called science of mind that's written by Ernest Holmes and it was published in 1927. And I believe every word in that book. And it's a simple philosophy, which is thoughts become things. And your mind is like a fertile garden of soil. And if you put in money trees, you'll grow money. And if you put in weeds, you'll grow weeds. And if you put in happy thoughts, you'll, put it, you'll get happiness. And if you put in sad thoughts, so you, you got to have a little gatekeeper, they call it, to make sure that you don't dwell on negativity because that's what you'll get. And there's a saying that, when you look in the mirror, what you see is a, a mathematical reflection of your life and your thoughts, and there's nobody else to blame. If you don't like the way your hair looks, then comb it. So I've really created this life that I've lived, and like I say, I, I was, you know, the only way to put this is if I was driving from Sacramento to, from San Francisco to Sacramento, and I go at 60 miles an hour, it takes me two hours to get there. If I go 120 miles an hour, I get there in an hour. So that's the advantage. The disadvantage is if you blow a tire going 60, you go thump, 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 and pull over. You blow a tire at 120, you might kill yourself and everybody else in the car. So I decided that I, I wanted to see how fast I could get from San Francisco to Sacramento. And, and there was a time when I, I crashed and a lot of people got hurt. 
and I'll always be remorseful and, and feel bad about that. But I've learned that I'm going to have to live with that for the rest of my life. It's not going to go over, uh, go away. I'm, I, you know, so I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I, like I say, I would like to become a role model for people that have made mistakes like me and really show people that we do live in a society of second chances. Do you think maybe your life goals would have changed uh, when you were younger in your Balco days if one of your athletes died? Of course. And if you had to give someone a, a budding future Victor Conti Balco-esque type of person that wants to be someone like you to help do peds and whatnot, what would be your advice for them? Stay away. It's not, it's not worth it. Victor, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your real fight with everyone. I'm, I'm happy that you got to tell people who you really are before the Victor Conti Balco, but the Victor Conti Kirby Hancock, the walking fish, the tower of power, the man that loves bass, uh, the bass, the man that loves music, the father, the husband, everything else besides who you are now. And that's, and that's perfect. All right, Victor, so uh, you take care, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much for everything you appreciate do. You too. All right, take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>